For those that haven't been a part of the Vacation Bible School before, uh, you have no idea what you're missing. Uh, it is a lot of fun getting involved in Vacation Bible School. I know it's still a little ways off, but there is no time like the present to write your name down and let us know how you're going to be volunteering. After a presentation like that, how can you not want to be involved in Vacation Bible School? Luan, I'd like to borrow that trumpet. I mean, that seems like an effective means to get people's attention. Um, sometimes we're, I feel like we're asleep half the time in church, that we need to maybe have a trumpet blared in our face to wake up a little bit. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of opportunities for people to get involved in Vacation Bible School. Uh, regardless of how much you feel you can contribute, there is so many different areas that you can contribute and help out. Uh, some that are less involved than others, some that require a, a lot of uh, physical fitness, some that don't require a lot of physical fitness. So if there is any capacity in which you think you can help out, please sign up. Let us know that you'll be participating by signing up on the sign-up sheet. There is a long list of opportunities for you to get involved with so make sure that you sign up for vacation Bible school today is Palm Sunday today is our day that we look at Jesus's triumphal entry and I want to look at a passage I know we read Luke's account but I want to focus our attention this morning on Matthew's account so would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We'll look at the first 11 verses here in Matthew 21 in a sermon that I've titled, It's All About Him. It's all about him. Matthew 21, in a moment we'll read these verses, verses 1 through 11. Just about every year, New York City holds a Thanksgiving Day parade. Uh, this past year, I had to look it up, but there were over 3 million spectators that lined the streets of New York City to witness firsthand all the festivities. Throughout the years, uh, we have seen here in New York, they've hosted many different parades, many different celebrations, such as in 1927, Charles Lindbergh returned from his one-man nonstop flight to Paris. In 1952, there was a parade for General Douglas MacArthur who returned from war. In 1962, New York City hosted a parade to welcome our first astronaut, John Glenn. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day that we refer to as Palm Sunday, there was a celebration like any of the parades that we see across this nation. Matthew 21.10 tells us, it says there, it says, when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved. All the city was moved when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That word moved is the Greek word seo, which is where we get the English word seismograph from. How many, how many of you know what that is? Some of you? The word is, is used, that word seo in the Greek, is used a total of five times in the entire Bible, and each time it is used to refer to a significant shake. A seismograph is, is what we use to measure earthquakes. So that word in the Greek is used five times in the Bible, and it's used each time to describe some significant shake, and it's used here in Matthew 21, verse 10, where it says, 
that all the city was moved. That word moved is that word seo, which describes a significant shake that took place. Three out of those five times that it's used, it refers to an actual earthquake. Uh, When Jesus died on the cross, in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51, it describes such a quake. It says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Once it refers to the violent shake experienced by the guards that were positioned outside of the tomb of Jesus as they fell to the ground as dead men, the Bible says, at the sight of the angel outside the tomb. It uses that same word, say, where they violently shook and fell to the ground as if they were dead. And the fifth time is is seen here in Matthew 21, verse 10. So three times it refers to an actual earthquake, once to the violent shaking of the guards that were positioned outside of the tomb as Jesus was rising from the grave. And the once we see here in Matthew 21, verse 10, where it says all the city was moved, all the city was just shaken. Seismographs, as I mentioned, are used to measure the strength of earthquakes. And the same word is used to describe the emotional earthquake that was felt by the entire city there in Jerusalem as Jesus triumphantly rode into town. There is This was truly no ordinary celebration or parade because this was no ordinary man entering the city. Even though as a nation, the Jews would ultimately reject Christ, the hearts and minds of the people were experiencing such an immense and intense emotional earthquake. What makes things interesting is that this wasn't the first time Jesus had come into Jerusalem. Throughout his life and his public ministry, Jesus had been to Jerusalem countless times. He visited there often. He had traveled this route, the same route that he was traveling here on this specific day so many times, and yet everything was different on this day. Because this time, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for one specific purpose, the same purpose that he took on human flesh for, to go to the cross on our behalf. The time had finally come for Jesus to offer himself upon the cross on behalf of every human being. Jesus was about to take the full punishment of the world's sin upon himself and everyone seemed to sense that on this day, Palm Sunday, everything was different about Jesus coming into town. And this was exactly what Christ came to earth in the first place. In John 3, 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said in in John 10, 17, He says, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Jesus came to offer everlasting life to everyone and he's doing so by laying down his own life, he says. And the means by which he's doing that is by taking the place of every sinner upon the cross. The will of God the Father was for him to go to the cross for all of us. He was always going to the cross. Throughout his public ministry, Many of the Jews who were opposed to him made attempts to put him to death. But all of those were unsuccessful because we're told that his hour had not yet come. Now the time had come and Jesus was riding into Jerusalem so that he might lay down his life for us. To take it again in three days. The just 
was taking the place of the unjust. The sinner was taking the place, or the sinless was taking the place of the sinner. The redeemer was offering redemption. It may have been a familiar route that Jesus traveled probably hundreds of times during his lifetime. Everything was different on this day. He may have passed by all of the same homes. He may have passed by all the same shops, all the same people that he did a hundred times before this. But on this day, everything would be completely different. He wasn't just an ordinary man passing by on this day. He received fanfare and praise like he had never received, received before. When the Savior of the world was born here on earth, there was no parade. There was no celebration. There was no welcome. Yes, we, we have the record in Luke chapter 2 of the angels praising God and delivering the message to the shepherds there outside of Bethlehem. But even that, there was no real excitement no, no one from the, from the town, no one from the cities came to welcome him as their new king. God was literally joining humanity and being one of us. And there was no royal treatment. There was no royal caravan. There was only a bed of hay for baby Jesus to rest his head. Typically, Jesus was not one to stir commotion. But in this instance, he made himself the center of attention as a final effort to reach his people with the message of salvation. So what is there for us to learn from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? For obviously it was such a significant event that the entire city, the Bible says in Matthew 21 verse 10, was moved, was shaken, was stirred violently as they witnessed all of this happening before them. What can we learn from this? Follow along as I read verses 1 through 11 here in Matthew 21. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And there are a number of key details in this account that are worth our attention. First, I want you to notice the unnamed servants. The unnamed servants. What Jesus did here was a direct fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. In order to fulfill the prophecy, Jesus had to send two disciples to prepare things for him. And we aren't told which two disciples that he sent. But they were sent to a nearby village. And all the information we're given here is found in the first five verses. Notice what it says here again in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5. When they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, 
Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. This is all we're told. Jesus tells them where to go. He tells them what to say. And the verse 6, the following verse, tells us that the disciples did exactly as he instructed. They went and did as he commanded. Simple and straightforward. Except for the fact that there was so much about this that we aren't told. There's so much information that is left out. Whose donkey was this? Were arrangements made ahead of time for Jesus to use it? Were the owners believers in Jesus? We get no information about the owners. We get no information about any sort of arrangements that are made ahead of time. We're not even told the name of the two disciples that are sent to go fetch the animal. All we're told is that Jesus tells these two unnamed disciples where to find the animal and what to tell the owners. And you know what? We don't need to know any of it. We don't need to know the name of the two disciples. We don't need to name, know the names of the owners. We don't need to know if there were arrangements that were made ahead of time or if this was Jesus just telling them what to do, where they're going to find it, and they're going to take the animal, whether or not the owners know about what's going on. We don't need to know any of it. And I personally believe that the owners were believers in Jesus, which is why they didn't object to the animal being taken in the first place. But it really doesn't make a difference. The main lesson we learn is that we are to obey the Lord's instructions and trust that he will take care of working out those details. Later that same week, Jesus would send Peter and John to prepare the upper room for their last supper, for the Passover celebration. And the instructions that he would give Peter and John, which are named in this account, would be quite similar. And listen to what they were told in Luke chapter 22, verses 8 through 13, as Jesus instructed them to go prepare the upper room. It says, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. So the only difference between these two accounts is that we actually get the names of the two disciples that are helping out. When they're called to prepare the upper room, we're told that it's Peter and John. Here in Matthew, we're never told, and in any account that records the triumphal entry, we're never given the names of the two disciples who are called to fetch the animal. But who is this man that they were called to meet? The man who would be bearing a pitcher of water. Jesus knew that he'd be at the exact place at the exact point so the disciples could run into this man. Did Jesus arrange all these details in advance? Was this homeowner, the good man of the house, was he a believer that maybe simply heard that Jesus wanted to use his room to observe the Passover and gladly offered it to him? I think the lesson is the same here. It is to simply obey the Lord's instructions and allow him to work out the details. Now, I personally love the fact that we have so little information with regards to these instances, especially no names, specifically here in Matthew 21. When you think about how many times we see this, how, there, how many unnamed people 
up here in Scripture who all they're known for is just faithfully serving and obediently doing as God commands, it's encouraging to me. Think about the woman that Jesus met at the well of Jacob in John chapter 4. We never get the woman's name. And yet that same woman in John chapter 4 is saved and is instrumental in leading many more to Jesus as she goes back to the town of Sychar there in Samaria and tells the entire city about the man she just met who is the Savior and the entire city comes to meet Jesus and majority of them are saved and they beg and plead for Jesus to stay several days longer and he does. We never get her name. Who is the boy that brought Andrew, that, that Andrew brought to Jesus, rather, who had a small lunch of five loaves of bread and two fish, which Jesus blessed and fed over 5,000 people? What was his name? We never get it. Who was the little girl in 2 Kings chapter 5 that told Naaman about a prophet in Samaria that could heal him of his leprosy? What was her name? There are so many unnamed people that we come across in the Bible. And what's important is not knowing their names, but knowing that they faithfully served the Lord where they were and when they had opportunity to do so. Their names may not go down in history, but the Lord has rewarded each of them, and you can count on that, as they believed on him and served him faithfully where they were. We don't know which two disciples were sent to fetch this animal. We don't know the names of the owners, but we do know that they all faithfully obeyed the Lord's instructions and left all the details up to Christ to work out. Notice again what it says there in verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They didn't say, well, whose house is it? Shouldn't we talk to the owners before we just go and take the animal from them? You know, I don't know how you've done things before, but this is no normal protocol. We don't just take the animal before we talk to the owners about this. You're doing things backwards here. It doesn't say, they don't say any of that. All it says is the disciples went. And did as Jesus commanded. Sometimes we get carried away. Carried away with wanting our name to be in the spotlight. Carried away with wanting to receive recognition we feel we deserve when we need to realize that it's not about us. Our purpose as believers is not self-promotion or even self-glorification, but Christ's promotion and Christ's glorification. It's okay to receive a pat on the back and it's okay to receive praise of men, but our motivation to serve the Lord to the best of our ability is, is not that we might get that praise of men, the, the pat on the back, but it's to ensure that God is the one who's always glorified in everything that we do. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to serve in a, a prison ministry. And the way it would work is we would go into the prison and have basically like a four-day retreat with the residents that were there and we would preach the gospel. We would have little discipleship groups that we would have with them. And I had a number of opportunities over the case of these four days to preach the gospel to them. And there was a group of, the whole group that we were speaking to was made up of probably around 70 or so inmates. And out of that group, there were maybe seven or eight of them that were believers before it all started. And I remember before I was about to speak on one occasion that that group of believers who had been our helpers in, in some of the details that we were doing there inside the prison, they came to me knowing that I was going to bring the message. And before I spoke, they asked if they could pray for me. So I, I of course, jumped at that opportunity. And I remember as they, they brought me into a room and they sat me down on a chair and they all circled around me and laid their hands on me and began praying. And each one took their turn praying. And the last guy that prayed for me, I'll never forget this, he prayed and asked God to make me God's donkey. 
And I knew what he meant. And I told him afterwards that I've never been called a donkey before. But I knew that he was referring to what we see here in Matthew 21 and each of the triumphal entry accounts that Jesus would ride on a donkey into Jerusalem as people shouted hosannas and praised him. You see, that donkey that Jesus rode on the back of into Jerusalem was being used by God to deliver his only begotten son into the world. Of all the animals in the world, on all the donkeys that were available there in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem, God chose this specific donkey and even the donkey knew it was about him even he knew it wasn't about him and this is what the inmate was praying that I would realize that I was God's donkey prepared and sent to deliver God's message Amen. it wasn't about me but it was all about God sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to set aside our own egos and to make sure that God gets all the glory as much as we don't care to admit it, we all enjoy to some degree receiving praise and recognition for the things that we've done. Some may shy away from too much praise, but to some degree, we enjoy at least a little bit. Is there anything wrong with receiving praise? Absolutely not. But if that becomes our motivation to serve, then it has become wrong. When we're making it a point that people know that we're the ones to do something, Instead of leaving it to God to receive the credit, we've missed it. When we become self-absorbed and need people talking about how good we are, complimenting us left and right, up and down, then we're motivated for all the wrong reasons. In Colossians 3 and verses 23 and 24, the Bible tells us what our motivation ought to be. It says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. As a believer, never forget who it is that you're ultimately trying to please. Whether it's in the home, whether it's at work, whether around the town, whether in church, you serve the Lord Christ as a believer. Serve him cheerfully, not grudgingly, wherever it is you're called to serve and in whatever capacity you're called to serve. Years ago in Melbourne, Australia, a church leader was excessively eloquent as he introduced the founder of the China Inland Mission. J. Hudson Taylor was speaking, and he referred to him as our illustrious guest. Now, Hudson Taylor stepped to the pulpit and he said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. If people are going home from church praising the pastor or the participants instead of glorifying God, then we failed. We failed. It's not about us. It's not about a pastor. It's not about deacons. It's not about the choir. It's not about any one of us. It's all about Christ. Which is why we don't get the names of the people that are involved here in Matthew 21. Even the donkey knew it was all about Jesus. So let me give you a little bit of advice today. Be more like the donkey. Be okay being an unnamed servant. We shouldn't be here because we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We shouldn't be here because we're trying to, to elevate our status. 
We should be here because we're trying to serve Christ and to further his kingdom by spreading the gospel. If a hundred years from now, no one remembers my name and no one has named the church after me, do you think I'm going to be disappointed? Shake your head no, please. I hope you don't think worse of me. I won't be disappointed because I know it's not about me. I'm not here to make a name for myself. I'm here to preach the gospel. And I'm here to try and win as many souls for Christ as I can. I know that I'm the Lord's instrument and I'm only useful to him the more that I'm in tune with his word. If the Lord should move me on, I know that my mission doesn't change. Or if the Lord should take me home, I know that his plans are perfect. Either way, every one of us should be able to know and understand that it's not about us. It's all about him. I'm okay if people don't know my name. For crying out loud, some of you can't even pronounce my name. I'm okay with that. Because God has called me to have a much greater purpose than teaching people how to pronounce my name. He's called me to preach the gospel. Every one of us have the same mission. Be okay being an unnamed servant, leaving the details up to Christ. Second, we notice the unbroken beasts. The unbroken beasts. Look at verses 6 and 7 once more. It says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. Now Luke's account gives us a little more insight, and that's why I wanted to read that earlier, but I'll mention it again. In Luke 19, verses 32 to 35, it tells us specifically about these animals. It says, And they, they that were sent their way, and found even as he had said unto them, and as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why Lucy the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. When the owners questioned the disciples, the matter was settled. It says, The Lord hath need of him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would never want to ride an unbroken animal. That's the Bible tells us there that this animal had never had a person ride on him before. I would never want to ride an unbroken animal. Any of you have ridden an unbroken animal before? Any of you? No one? Why? Okay, all right, fine. You don't break it, yes, that's true. It has to be broken in, right? But was it fun riding an unbroken animal? Yes, you get thrown off. The animal says, get off of my back. Jesus had nothing to worry about, though. He had nothing to worry about. Because as much as this animal had never had anyone ride on him before, the Lord of all creation was always in perfect control of everything. If we want to have peace of mind, we need to constantly remind ourselves that God is always in control and that God's timing is never wrong. If we're serving the Lord in his will, we can always be confident that God is in control and that he's going to work out everything just as it needs to be worked out. Have you ever stopped to think about how incredible it is that we get to partner with God to accomplish his purposes? we get to partner with the God who spoke the entire universe into existence to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need any of us for this. He doesn't need our help to get his will done. And yet, he's allowing us to partner with him. He's not up in heaven anxiously pacing back and forth in heaven wondering whether or not we're going to be able to complete our end of the deal because he's not sure whether or not his will is going to be accomplished. He's not nervously chewing on his fingernails, wondering if we're going to share the gospel. 
God can accomplish all of his will without of our help, with any of, without any of our help. And I'm pretty sure that if he can speak the entire world into existence, he doesn't need our help with anything. And this is what makes it so incredible that God doesn't need our help. And yet he enlists us anyways. He enlists us not because he needs us, but because he knows we need him. We have the privilege of learning, of growing, and sharing in the blessings of God's service. When we understand that, it's truly an honor for all of us to know him and to do God's will. God has a plan and a purpose for every one of us, but it's up to us to follow his leading to fulfill that purpose. Are we seeking the Lord's will for our lives? Are we faithfully meeting with the Lord each day and receiving his instruction? Are we obediently following him as he leads? Very simple verse, verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. That's it. They did as they were told. And notice third, the unknowing crowd. The unknowing crowd. Notice verses 8 through 10 here in Matthew 21. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Sociologists have tried and, and struggled, really, to predict what a, any single individual will do. But what they found is that they can be pretty close and fairly accurate predicting what a crowd will do for any number of factors, whether it's fear or excitement, whatever it is, there is something known as crowd mentality. And this crowd mentality, it drives groups of people and unites people in crowds, regardless of whether or not they have a leader. The crowd that was gathered here in Jerusalem on this, what we call First Palm Sunday, was made up of citizens of Jerusalem as well as Jews that were coming in from all around the world. Some knew who Jesus was, others did not, based on the question that we see there in verse number 10. Who is this? The people are asking. A good number of people who were gathered there that day were praising Christ, thinking that he was come to deliver them from Roman bondage. Few were believing that Jesus had come offering freedom from the bondage of their sin, and that's clear based on several verses. We read in John 1, verse 11, the Bible says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. We're also told in Psalm 118, in verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. The stone is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus' public ministry lasted over three years where he taught countless truths, evidenced his deity through countless miracles. He had healed all manner of diseases. He had fed those that were hungry. He had given sight to the blind. He even raised people from the dead. But many still refused to believe that he is indeed the Son of God. We read in John chapter 10 and verses 24 to 26, the Bible says, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto them, said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. The evidence overwhelmingly proved 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Not to mention that all the claims that he had made to be the Son of God. And the Jews still refused to accept him. It was a, a willful ignorance. They looked at all the evidence. It was undeniable that it all pointed to one conclusion, that he is indeed the Son of God. And they saw it and refused to accept the truth that was right before their eyes. Is the spiritual perception any different today? Think about what was happening when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day. Jerusalem was filled with visitors who had come in from all around the world to celebrate what is referred to as the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was an annual Jewish feast that where they celebrated God's deliverance and celebrated God's provision while their, their ancestors were in bondage in Egypt. The last part of the feast included each family eating a freshly sacrificed lamb where their ancestors, when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt, God had instructed each family to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to apply it to the doorposts of their home. And when they did that, the angel of death who was coming to kill all the firstborn would pass over the homes that had the blood applied to the doorposts. Hence, the feast of the Passover. So God would institute later a yearly observance where his protection and the deliverance that he gave them would be commemorated. The Jews were all engaged in this. There was a requirement for them to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so you had Jews from all over the world coming here, all engaged in observing a religious feast where they're sacrificing lambs while simultaneously rejecting the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who came to sacrifice himself on their behalf. Do you catch the irony here? Is the spiritual perception any different today? Are we more concerned with religious practices than actually looking to Jesus and serving him? Can you imagine that the church could become so full of itself and its traditions that we actually neglect and reject the one on whom we're supposed to stand? As we sit today, a week before Resurrection Sunday, I think we have a lot to be thinking about. And notice fourth, the unexpected tears. The unexpected tears. Whenever there is a parade welcoming someone to town, it usually ends with the guest of honor offering some sort of a speech for, upon his arrival. And this is not what Jesus would do. In Luke 19, verse 41, it tells us what Jesus did. It says, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He wept over it. He wept because of the willful ignorance and the unbelief of the nation of Israel. The multitudes may have been crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It appears to be an appropriate cry. But for the most part, this was the cry of a desperate people that were under Roman oppression, thinking that they were finally going to be freed and delivered from that. It may seem to be a sincere praise to God, but how can it be when just a few days later, the majority and the multitudes would be looking at Jesus again, but on this time, in a few days following this day, they would be crying out for him to be crucified. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew that the city was destined to be captured, that the city was destined to be destroyed by the Roman army, and many people would be killed. He cried out in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. 
Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus promises that there is a day when he shall return, when as a nation they shall finally recognize him for who he truly is, but that day is not yet. He wept over them at his triumphal entry because though they said the right things, they said them for the wrong reasons. They rejected him for who he is and refused to accept him for what he really came to do. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus often discouraged people from broadcasting who he was and what he had done. Unlike the Pharisees, who always sought to get the people's attention, Jesus rarely sought the praise of men. Often to avoid the crowds, Jesus would go off into a mountain to be alone. Had the religious leaders of Israel received him and even believed any of his teachings, their future would have been drastically different. Christ was not impressed by the praises of the people here on Palm Sunday, for he knew their hearts. Some were genuine, for sure, but the majority of them didn't even realize what they were saying. And rather than embracing their praises and offering a speech, Jesus instead wept over the people, knowing that judgment was coming to them because of their unbelief. He came for them. He came, as Matthew 23 says, to gather them to himself to offer freedom from the bondage of their sin, to bring them everlasting life and joy in heaven. But they chose to remain in unbelief and they rejected the Lamb of God which came to take away the sin of the world. They wouldn't have him as he came to gather him. Some people get upset if they don't receive recognition they feel they deserve. Some people get upset if they're thanked for the work they do in church. It's kind of interesting. Some people like the praise. Some people get upset when they get praise while others get upset when their work is, is publicly recognized. It's kind of interesting. Does it upset you when your work or your service goes unnoticed? Do you feel unappreciated if you aren't receiving compliments? I'm sure you all do this. I know I do this all the time. But do any of you play the comparison game where you find someone maybe worse off than you in order to make yourself feel better about what you're doing and who you are? Does comparing your Christianity with others help you live a more satisfying Christian life? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he did so to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Our responsibility is not to make ourselves feel better by comparing our situation to others, but to compare our situation with Scripture. Everything Jesus did was supported by Scripture. Everything he did was a fulfillment of Scripture. Do our thoughts, do our plans, do our actions agree with the Bible? Do we talk more about ourselves than we talk about Christ? Is what we're doing here in church more focused on ourselves and more focused on self-promotion than Christ and proclaiming his word? Is Jesus being glorified in our lives or are we just giving him lip service? Are we making ourselves feel good about who we are and what we're doing because we're in a church and we're among the crowd? The crowds were gathered that day to worship and to praise Jesus as he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. But for the most part, the praises were empty because they were more concerned about themselves than the one who was actually in their midst. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because even though the people were claiming to praise him, they were more concerned about themselves than they were about Christ. Ironically, Jesus wept over them because as much as they only cared for themselves, Jesus cared about them more than they ever cared for themselves. Palm Sunday wasn't about them. Palm Sunday was all about him. 
We stand to benefit eternally from what Christ did for us, but he and always should be the object of our praise because no matter what we may think and no matter how much praise and recognition we may get here in this life, it is always about him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have a, a humbling reminder of what our lives ought to be. Lord, it's easy for us to get carried away, to lose focus on what we should be focused on. Lord, we receive praise of men for a moment, and it comes and it gets to our head. Lord, I pray that we would be as humble as these unnamed disciples, unnamed servants, Lord, who just followed your instructions, obeyed as you commanded. I pray, Lord, that we would leave all the details to be worked out for you, and I pray, Lord, that we would realize that this Christian life is not about us, is not about getting our name, Lord, recognized or putting ourselves in the spotlight, but it's all about glorifying your name and magnifying your work. You're the, you're the one that we seek to praise. You're the one, Lord, that we seek to honor here in our lives. Lord, may we truly know and make it a point to be true in our lives that we're living to please you with all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.